I mean, I used to go through my day and I wouldn't even realize that every action I was taking was to meet some kind of a need of mine, right? And needs are beautiful, you know, they're universal. We all have them. So it's incredible that, you know, we're trying to meet a need. And even when we do something we regret, you know, to be able to step back and say, okay, I don't like what I did, but there was a need that I was advocating for. You know, what was that? Because that's beautiful. So I can actually be compassionate with myself instead of beating myself up, you know, by connecting with that need that I have um, and then finding a better strategy to meet that, that, that serves not only myself and that need, but others, right? So that would be the objective. Welcome back to Shelf Life. We are truly grateful for each and every single one of you that comes back week after week as we embark on this journey to listen, explore, and expand our lens of perception. In honor of Martin Luther King Day and Martin Luther King's philosophies of nonviolence, I am extremely excited to introduce our first ever guest and author to Shelf Life. He will, without a doubt, shift and alter our perceptions for the better, I believe. He is a co-founder of Life Enriching Communication and a certified trainer with the Center for Nonviolent Communication. He has facilitated nonviolent communication workshops, trainings, and programs with individuals, families, parents, and organizations, and worked in domestic violence field for over 18 years. He dedicated his studies in journalism and Bible and theology, and he spends his free time as an avid nonprofit volunteer with over 20 years of experience. He shares his wisdom on a blog called Harmony of the Heart, and please welcome the author to the newly released captivating book, Principles and Practices of Nonviolence, 30 Meditations for Practicing Compassion. Welcome, Eddie Zacapa. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Luciano. Eddie, thank you. thank you so much for being here. It is very, very, it's quite the honor to have you. I just met you. I just got introduced to you not too long ago, and I come and you give me your book, and I read it, and wow, I'm completely blown away. The title had already captivated me, when I'm not knowing exactly what you're going to get into, and not knowing too much about this nonviolence community. And after reading it, wow, I just want way more. Like, I think you got to just give the readers so much more. <laughs> we got to go for two or three more volumes, honestly. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing those thoughts. I appreciate you for writing it. Uh, if I may just kind of get right into it. The first question, I'm, I really want to get a little bit more context of you, Eddie, if you don't mind. I'm fascinated with your work and I want to go into like the origin story before we dissect it every fascinating topic from the book. I want to know like what brought you to training in the nonviolent communication and nonviolent world? Yeah, you know, I sort of stumbled onto it. Um, I was working in ministry early on. And then uh, I, my mom actually met someone at church and said, I think your son would like to do this work. And she was referring to the domestic violence work. And at first I thought, well, I don't know if I could do that. But I got to observe her group, uh, my mom's friend, and I fell in love with it. I mean, I was the, the guys in the group uh, were sharing their stories. You know, they're, some of them were down and out, and um, I was able to contribute. And so that kind of started that journey. And then someone uh, invited a certified trainer 
to do a training for us on nonviolent communication. And when he shared that, it was like, you know, my mind was blown and uh, I was just so uh, excited about sharing it. So within weeks I was sharing that I was doing and it's been 18 years now. So just teaching nonviolent communication. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it kind of divine intervention there. You just fall into it. I think those are the best, <laughs> those are the best careers when you just fall into them. Um, if yeah. in, the, in, the, in the book, you, I understand nonviolence communication is heavily influenced by, if I correct me if I'm wrong, Gandhian principles? Yes. Yeah, so Marshall Rosenberg, who's the founder, was very much inspired by nonviolence and Gandhi. And so uh, even the word nonviolence means ahisma, uh, which means like uh, to have no violence in your heart, right? And to have such an open heart that it's open to compassion. So um, definitely has its roots in nonviolence. I love that. I love that. That was actually going to be my next question. What is ahisma? But in correlation to that, I know early on in the book, you talk about a 64-day campaign for nonviolence. And it starts actually not... It starts January 30th, so of 2021. What is, you, you already talked about Ahizma is nonviolence, but what is this campaign and how is it kind of all interconnected? Yeah, so this, this campaign was started, I believe, by um, Gandhi's grandson. And it's a 64-day uh, season, I guess you could say, a time where people can come and reflect, contemplate on the teachings of nonviolence. Uh, there's lots of websites out there where you could read uh, just a little quote every day, something to kind of get you started. Um, and so I was inspired by that uh, as well. And so um, my idea, my hope was that people could read my book while doing that, you know, during that time. And so just to really get into that spirit of ahisma and nonviolence and be able to practice that into their life. Oh, wow. So it's for you. So do you, you partake in this 64 day campaign, correct? How do you... Uh, yes. How do you partake in it? Like what, what is kind of your schedule or your regimen for this? Right. So, so I, I, I do, there is like a, if you look it up, there's definitely something you can read every day. So I do mm -hmm. do that. Um, and then I journal, you know, and I'll, I'll meditate and pray throughout the day on that. And then, um, you know, try to do something each day where I'm actually doing something in regards to practicing nonviolence or compassion. Right. right. And for any of the listeners that are thinking like, what is like an actionable result from practicing something that's nonviolent, read the book. <laughs> you give <laughs> awesome descriptions or any practices and practical ones, pragmatic ones where you can sit there after you read a chapter, there's a practice at the end that gives you contemplative ideas to say, Oh, I should actually, write this down, reflect on it, and then act, take action on it. So when you say do something actionable with nonviolence, I think you describe it perfectly in the practices. So for the listeners, you got to read the book and get to those practice section, sections and understand, oh, okay, there is actionable things that you can do that result into nonviolence communication, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Perfect. definitely. Okay. Just make sure I had it on, <laughs> on target. So you mentioned Marshall Rosenberg, right? Yes. Um, he is the founder of the Center for Nonviolence Communication, correct? Did you ever yes. have a chance to meet him or what is his influence and like, let, what is his influence done on, onto you and how do you kind of carry his legacy? Because I know he passed. Yeah, so I, I did have an opportunity to meet him. 
I got to uh, attend a few of his workshops when he was in Oakland and um, actually got to spend 10 days with him and an intensive, which was really sweet. That was something I'll, I'll never forget and got to share a little bit with him of the work I was doing. And, uh, you know, um, he was, he, he, he clapped and was very proud of the, the work I was doing. So that was a really special moment, but definitely a mentor of mine and someone that I really esteem. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That seems amazing. Do you know, can you, can, can you give us a quick, this uh, quick sec, uh, just a quick memory maybe of him that kind of a lesson or anything that he taught because his influence is heavily illustrated in the book. And I'm, I had to go and search on yeah. him because I thought some of his sayings and teachings and quotes that you put in the book were so resounding and so phenomenal. I thought, okay, wait, who is this man? And even Deepak Chopra mentions him and talks about him at the end when you mentioned it. So I said, okay, I got to do my, my, my research. Mm-hmm. Would you have any? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I remember, I, yeah, I was in a workshop with him. And I was just learning. I was just in the beginning, right? And so he was talking about um, good and evil in this uh, workshop. And I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, so are you saying there's no good and evil? You know, because he's encouraging people not to think in those terms, black and white, and who's right, who's wrong. And so I thought I was going to catch him there. There's no way he's going to say there's no good and no evil. And so then he just stunned me and just like, no, I do believe in good and I just define it differently. And so he said, I see good as that which serves life. Mind people as that which you know, doesn't deserve life. Can I ask you that how helps me so that I don't you get believe in now we're talking in people as good economy, or bad. capitalism, and that how, then leads to what's your take that on how it's like the an world enemy image. And I was just like blown away when products, you said that. It just kind of all made commerce sense and things right that there. So I just what remember that. Kind of give and, um, I was really as Chad or like advice for the corporations in taking this type of mentality and ideology. Right. So I think the the mentality I hope would be to really care about what people's needs are um, and to really be thinking about, okay, is what I'm doing, you know, whether it's work or whether it's a product, is it serving life? Is it serving people? You know, and how is that serving life? And if, if you can answer that question and feel proud of yourself, you know, then I think you're on the right track. Right. Um, but just really staying the course on that and not getting caught up and just making money or, right. um, you know, playing that, that, that game. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's our capitalistic governance has definitely spilled into more of just profit ideology. You know, think of yeah. like, how does someone, it's difficult. I mean, this is, this is besides the conversation, but like people in the cigarette industry, you know, when they just, they're definitely driving in profit. And they know maybe their product does not serve life. And like you're, com- you're that's, the com- that's the inner conflict right there. Mm-hmm. It's mind-boggling. But yeah. one of your next sections, one of the areas of the book here that really stood out to me as well was the relaxed presence. <laughs> I thought that really gave toll. It really pulled me in the direction of understanding because I, this is my personality, I think, habit is attempting to lend an ear, but I immediately respond with, oh, I got the perfect advice for you. Like, here you go. Like, don't even finish what you're gonna say. I got it. (laughs) Like, let me just serve it to you because that's gonna cure all your problems. And I have perpetually behaved that way. And I know it hasn't led to many 
enlightenment conversations. So can you expand on what's relaxed presence? Because I know it was from Mickey Kashtan, right? The co-founder yes. of the Bay Area Nonviolent Community. Yeah. So she, yes. So when I, when I'm thinking about relaxed presence, I'm, I'm thinking about just really being fully present for somebody else. So not thinking about what, what the Giants game is, you know, that's going on, nothing about the laundry I have to do, but just really being focused entirely on what that person might be experiencing and in nonviolent communication, more specifically what their feelings or what their needs might be. Um, and when we can offer that, I think that's the, the, the best gift that we can offer someone to be fully present. And sometimes reflecting back what we heard or summarizing it can just really capture it for that person and just really validate what they yeah. shared. And so I think that's, it's really powerful. How, how, how have you used that practice in your, in, in, in your expertise, in your, in your profession? Because for me, like I said, I mentioned I have that perpetual need to, oh, when I hear something, I, I always want to fix hurt. I want to fix the sadness. I want to make sure like it just doesn't surround me. It doesn't consume the others. Like I'm very worried that it can consume others. But in this, what I've just learned from relaxed presence is like just leave that necessity or that insatiable desire to fix things because they can almost fix themselves. You know, like I have to give more credit to the other person. Is that how, how, do, you, how do you use that practice? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, before I learned online communication, I also wanted to, to fix or wanted to give right. advice, you know, especially right. as a counselor and, and whatnot. So, but what I, I realized was that by, by holding back and just focusing on validating someone and just really listening to them, they were able to get a lot of wisdom from just hearing back what they, what they shared. And so even by just doing that and having that clarity, you know, especially if you can connect with that person's need and longing, you know, mm. what they're really longing for. Um, it just, it sort of leads to maybe self-discovery, maybe another need that that's connected to, right? So, um, and that just, uh, you know, I found was much more powerful, you know, for people yeah. if I could do that. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. It makes so much sense. I've, because on the reverse side, when I communicate and I tend to over-communicate, but when I actually we're going to dive into vulnerability, but when I become vulnerable and I just spill out my emotions and I'm able to communicate to somebody that is literally present, but it's not necessarily attempting to fix anything, but it's just reinforcing, Oh, what is it? Keep going digging. Like, you know, I love to dig, but eventually when I get far enough, like I think I hit gold and I'm like, all right, let's extract it. Let's fix it. And let's put it back in. But this relaxed presence is just let the flow. It's like almost like be like water. Just let it keep flowing. Just let it keep flowing. Don't move anything. And it's, it's very, <laughs> I just love it. I gotta say, that's probably my favorite books. I just love it because it's something that I need to start practicing more. And that really spoke to me, but we can carry on from there to an, another area in the segment of the book where you really dive into forgiveness. You give everybody five steps to forgiveness. Can you educate or just expand on for myself and for the listeners, what does forgiveness do to us? And I, and I know it's very important and you have, you may have like a million answers to that, but if you can somehow condense it right here, give us, what does forgiveness do for us internally and externally? Yeah. So I think it liberates us, you know, um, when we don't forgive, we're, we're carrying a burden and uh, we're, we're feeling resentment. And so every time we think of that person, all of a sudden we're in this reactive state or we're in pain again. So 
when you forgive, it's, it's about experiencing freedom from resentment, letting that go. And it's very healing, you know, to yeah. be able to do that. It opens the door to the empathy and compassion for that person. Yeah. It, it reminded me of a, of a conversation that I heard from a podcast with Stephen Covey. And he talks about the guy that, the author of The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People. And he talked about the, he, he has his steps and his hierarchy of like proactiveness and then success or whatever, maybe he has a lot. And I'm, I mean, I'm still, I'm actually in the middle of reading that book. So that's why I've kind of had to mention him because I did some reference digging, but he, in an interview, he talked about how the last step to proactiveness to be like the most proactive person is forgiveness. And I thought, it, it, to me, it, it didn't make sense because, like, forgiveness is like taking a step back, you know, like recentering yourself. And proactive, I see it in my mind as like this dimension of just pushing forward. You know, like you're being proactive, you're moving forward, you're 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 excelling, you're moving to the next step. So then, when he mentioned it, he's like, the last step of being proactive is to forgive. Like, how do do you do you understand what that means? Can you because can, can you dissect that a little bit for us? Because I think you may have a better understanding of that than I do. Well, I think it's like a, like a springboard because in, when you mourn what you're doing, when you're, when you're forgiving, you know, you're, you're allowing yourself to process pain and to experience it. And then you're opening up to empathizing with someone else. But when you do that, you're released to go and do something, you know, to, to make a, a positive change or take action. So I see that as a springboard rather than something that's holding you back you know, or something you're carrying that's slowing you down from being able to be fully, you know, in your best, uh, best self. Absolutely. Makes sense. And, you know, you mentioned right there, my next question, actually, which was going to be mourn your unfulfilled needs. <laughs> and you say repeat your mourning of your unfulfilled needs, because it was something that you learned in your ministry work that Jesus said, blessed are the ones who mourn. Mm-hmm. Blessed are the ones who mourn. That, I, I mean, I love that quote. Can you explain mourning? Because I think you just touched on it again, but I, this is the first time I've ever heard of that. And this is actually the first time in this book that I've heard of unfulfilled needs because I've never categorized it that way. So mm-hmm. can you give us just kind of like an understanding of what does it mean to mourn your unfulfilled needs and what, to, what do you do after that? Right. So a lot of times when we think about mourning, we think about death. Right. And mm-hmm. so someone dies and we go through a period of mourning, we go through a period of accepting what happened and letting go. And I think it's, it's very similar in our life when we do something that we regret or there's maybe something, a need of ours is not being fulfilled. We can also go through that mourning. You know, we're also kind of uh, letting go or dying to something that can't be or something that hasn't occurred, accepting. Um, and then when we do that and we kind of sit with that for a bit, it leads to like this sweet pain that leads to change, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's sort of like it allows us now to step in to the beauty of the need that's not being fulfilled, um, to appreciate it, and then to be able to say, okay, what am I going to do about it now? How am I going to advocate for this and to bring this into my life? Because I might have been stuck on just one way of doing that. But there's so many ways to meet a need. So maybe now I'm released to see all those other possibilities of how mm. I can go and advocate for that need. I think uh, that led me to the, another Rosenberg quote that you had there. And I thought, 
it's related to unfulfilled needs and how every human being is in the service of meeting needs. And your book introduced that to me. And I thought, yeah, I I mean, I never thought that I was that selfish. (laughs) Are we really that selfish of creatures that we are always in the service of our needs? Do you believe so? Well, I don't think it's uh, selfishness. I think maybe it's uh, when we're doing it correctly, maybe selffulness. Mm. That's something that Marshall would say, you know. So if you uh, love yourself, if you give to yourself, then you're able to give more to others. So, but it's just really realizing too. I, I mean, I used to go through my day and I wouldn't even realize that every action I was taking was to meet some kind of a need of mine, right? And needs are beautiful, you know, they're universal. We all have them. So it's incredible that, you know, we're trying to meet a need. And even when we do something we regret, you know, to be able to step back and say, okay, I don't like what I did, but there was a need that I was advocating for. You know, what was that? Because that's beautiful. So I can actually be compassionate with myself instead of beating myself up, you know, by connecting with that need that I have um, and then finding a better strategy to meet that, that, that serves not only myself and that need, but others, right? So that would be the objective. That right there. I think the interview is done. I don't know if we can go back, right? Just changed my life. Um, and, and the topic that I kind of wanted some better clar- clarification was giraffe language. You mentioned it in the book. What is giraffe language? Yeah, so um, it's synonymous with nonviolent communication. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg, when he started nonviolent communication, he used the giraffe as a symbol for compassion because the giraffe has one of the largest hearts of any land mammal. And, you know, it's almost three feet long, 24, 27 pounds. And so, you know, it's just, it just symbolizes compassion and that part of us that uh, can be compassionate. And then he also used another animal, the jackal, to describe that part of us that's been socially conditioned to judge, to blame, to criticize. And so, you know, he uses those two as to contrast each other and then to, for us to be able to have uh, an image that we can identify with. Oh, wow. That's good. Now I, now I feel like I need to get like a giraffe tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just, I need to fill, I need to design a whole room filled of giraffes. I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned grounding techniques. Now, uh, this isn't the first place I've heard it. Uh, I remember hearing about grounding actually when my girlfriend and I went to this meditation class and the instructor came to us and she, he, she mentioned it to my girlfriend specifically. She tells her to ground herself and to go practice grounding at home or wherever you are. And at the time we had no idea what she was talking about. Like, grounding, what does that even mean? My girlfriend started to feel a little nervous. She's like, I got to figure this out. I don't know what it is wrong with me. <laughs> so we did research and we understood grounding is just finding your center, right? If it's just finding that place. Well, please describe to me what grounding means to you because I may have a different, different definition. No, that, that's definitely the objective is kind of getting centered, um, you know, doing certain things that can help you to just sort of calm down hmm. and just start, so a lot of times breathing is used. For, for grounding, you know, just practicing, focusing on your breath. Um, and so that kind of centers you. Sometimes even just putting your feet on the ground and feeling the ground. Right. So you sort of feel more grounded in that sense. Um, but you're just for put, putting your attention in the present, right, and putting right. your attention like on your breath. And so then you're able to enter in 
to that place where then you can, um, you know, go deeper, I guess. Absolutely. Do you have any techniques yourself for grounding? Do you, how do you use grounding in your days, in your life? Yeah. So, so, so me, me uh, pretty basic, but yeah, the, the grounding, I actually, you know, when someone introduced me to just uh, feeling my feet on the ground, I found that mm. really powerful. Like I just really got into it. You could even do it when you're taking, when you're walking, just feeling every step. And, right. and so um, just that helped me. And then of course the breathing, you know, is, mm. is a go-to go for me always just focusing on my breathing um, and staying centered on that. That just helps me like really reset and calm down, especially in situations where I'm stressed or right. I feel like I might be reactive. The breathing is, is definitely a go-to. Yeah. My mother actually developed, I mean, that developed, she discovered grounding <laughs> for the last couple months. She's told me to wake up in the morning and go and put my feet in the lawn or go find grass and just put my feet in actual dirt and earth and just feel that presence. And I said, I haven't done it yet. So don't tell her, but I, I I'm going to have to start practicing it because I can feel, I can understand the mechanics or like the ideas behind it. And I want to try it myself. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, to get into a topic now that I think this is very, and I love that you put this in the book and you related it to our times now facing what we face in 2020. You mentioned George Floyd in the section of finding meaning in tragedy. And I thought it was quite reverential what you, what you spoke there. And some of the quotes that you brought in from Martin Luther King and you tied it in to this particular situation were marvelous. How do you like assess like the anger that the country was in in all of 2020? And like, how can you, and how can we adopt and how, what advice would you give to the community, like to the, to the world, let's say in 2020, and how can we adopt more like nonviolent communication in the situation of like racial injustice? Right. So, so I think that anger that we first saw, right, there was something that so many of us saw that created this anger. And I think it was because we wanted, you know, possibly justice. Mm -hmm. We wanted, um, you know, human beings to be treated with, you know, dignity and compassion. And when we saw what we saw, it was just so heartbreaking, right? Um, and so a lot of times the first reaction in when we have something that's heartbreaking to see is, is anger. Um, but I would hope that we wouldn't just stay in that place of anger, but that we can also work through that uh, and get to that place where we can uh, mourn, where we can actually allow ourselves to experience some sadness about what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think when we do that, then we can really move to, towards like, okay, what can I do to make things better? What, how can mm -hmm. I play a part in bringing about the change that needs to happen, right? Whether it's systemic, whether it's in myself, you know, but how can I make a difference? But if we do that from anger, it's like we're sort of going to um, stand in the way of right. really being able to make significant change. So we want to get to that place where we we can allow ourselves to experience what Marshall would say, that sweet sadness that leads to change, right? Yeah. Sweet sadness, quite the polarizing words, <laughs> the juxtaposition between sweet sadness, it's, it's quite marvelous. But I mean, I mentioned that because I, I even participated in some of the protests and watching people there, you, I, I couldn't help but realize like there's, some people were just so angry. Like, there was too much anger to even make a conscious 
rational decision on what are your what's your purpose for being here, and then others taking it in, you know, a lot more calm, a lot more present in the fact that hey, this isn't because some people were there to try to just inflict catastrophe, inflict chaos, and I thought I don't know if that's the objective you're really searching for at the end of the day, you know, the people that make the decisions for the country are at home and just meditating on it and thinking, okay, what's the best solution that we can make? Or what's the best decision we can make when we, as just the common individuals of society, go out in the streets and want to, you know, create chaos. I thought, I don't know if that's the right answer. I think that's just all anger inflicted, right? And we're just trying to cause grief upon another set of individuals. And I think grief for grief or an eye for an eye, I think Gandhi said, eye for an eye will make the whole world blind (laughs) yeah right so i mean you mentioned this quote from martin luther king which is like we will have we will match the capacity to inflict you we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our our capacity to endure suffering Mm -hmm. and that was pretty that's pretty deep (laughs) you know some of the part yeah that's really deep what do you think about it yeah. So, so first of all, my heart goes out to, to any individual who, you know, is, is in that angry place, you know, even if they're protesting and because I could understand, you know, what, what that, where that's coming from, you know, and that they're, they're still in a lot of pain. And so my hope is that we can get to that place where we can process that pain. And I, I, I really, here's where I really like look up very much to Martin Luther King Jr. and his movement, because he was able to, to really exemplify that, you know, with those who are marching with them, those who are part of his protests or just, you know, his movement, uh, they really wanted to incorporate loving their neighbor, you know, and being and having that open heart. And they weren't just thinking about what what's the change we want, but they're hoping to also change the other individual too, who was opposing them, so that everybody can come to a place together that uh, met everybody's needs, you know, right. and was the change that needed to happen. Yeah. Right. You mentioned you have some phenomenal stories from Martin Luther King in the book that I have not, I've never read and I've never been introduced to them. And putting them in the retrospect now of what we're experiencing in modern society, I'm thinking, wow, because there's such a correlation or there's such a difference between some people now, like with the anger that we're feeling in 2020, it just so happens that I, I, I see more people taking an ear and listening a lot to and there's no difference between who's wrong and right i have no ties to either one but a lot of malcolm x has become into the forefront because of the anger that we feel from the injustice for hundreds of years and now we start to dig into like the corporation side of it and people not getting the seats that they deserve in the representation i understand that However, the stories that you present from Martin Luther King and being able to literally read that and just reference this last year of how I was feeling, of how I'm like indulging this information from the media, from the riots, from the chaos, from whatever it was, I think, wow, like Martin Luther King's point or his message is that I'm going to love you so hard <laughs> that I'm going to really dig you out of your hate, right? And like, I'm going to combat you with so much admiration and eventually you'll fold. Eventually we may have to, we may lose lives. We may lose a piece of our arms or limbs, whatever it may be, but we will not give up. And, and I mean, that's Gandhi's sacrifice, right? Gandhi didn't eat for how long? I don't know his story too well, but I know he was, he was trying, he was almost killing himself yeah. for the sake of love. Mm-hmm. 
we can get into this topic here because this is where I also felt very connected to one of the areas that I'm trying my best to improve. And I think as men in our society, this is an area where we could definitely improve and it's the vulnerability. And I love how you use Brene Brown. She's the goat of vulnerability and shame. <laughs> and what is your take on vulnerability as like the largest deficiencies in our society, especially with men? Yeah. So I think so many times we've been taught, right. Uh, especially as men to not, not show uh, emotion. A mm -hmm. uh, little boy usually is told, you know, uh, don't cry. Right. And if we have a little girl, you know, a daughter and she scrapes her knee, we go pick her up and, and comfort her. But the guy, the little boy will just be, Oh, he's fine. You know, let just let him cry. Yeah. He'll work it out. I'm, I'm, that's me. I've done the same thing. I've, I've told little boys, <laughs> just pick yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's 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 interesting how we treat you know each each sex differently but i think you know we're setting um children up if we if we if we tell them don't show emotion it's not okay to cry because then you're just stuffing everything right and then when you get into relationships you can't work through things you can't express it and you can't even identify maybe what your feelings and needs are because you don't allow yourself to to feel you know to experience that um, and I think with, with uh, girls, you know, with women, they're taught to that they have no needs, right? And so that they have to focus on everybody else's needs. Mm -hmm. And so you could just see how that can just set up, uh, you know, dilemma in, in yes. a relationship. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So, I, so when it comes to that, I think we, it's so important to create spaces where people can experience trust mm -hmm. and where they can be themselves and where they can process and share their emotions and their and their their needs, and so the more we can do that and, and encourage that, encourage that, the more healthy I think we're going to be. You know, when it comes to our social emotional health. <laughs> Beautiful, and uh, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And ever since I discovered Brene Brown and listened to her and from her her research and conversations, and that's the first time. Literally, it was this last year, twenty twenty, while I had some free time. And I was being overly indulged with anger. <laughs> so I thought, okay, just Brene Brown pops up and I start reading, watching all these uh, specialties that she has one on Netflix. I thought, wow, I actually do struggle with vulnerability and I had no idea. <laughs> I thought I was very strong and just macho and that's just, my, that's just my personality. I'm sorry, everybody, you know, that's how I am. But I didn't realize that that was a defense or like a coping mechanism to not deal with my emotions being able to express them yeah, just yeah. and then and, and, and I, I can understand that for nonviolence. you know like if we are able to speak the the traumas we have and i think that's why people resort to counseling and therapy because that's what you're i mean your position if i may be wrong but i'm understanding just from the simplistic manners like like how you said right now it's just being present what was the word that we use? Uh, I'm sorry, let me look it up. Because a relaxed presence, being that relaxed presence, you just let people speak and then just let it out. And then that vulnerability comes out and then you get to the true nature of like, why are you upset? What's the trauma? What's the anger? Right. It's just, I, I, I'm very much a believer in psychology and a believer of counseling and believer in this. So I, I respect you and your, your work heavily. And just listening to you speak is, is amazing. I thank you. If we can continue, I think this is my one of my areas where I wanted to, to, to give you a quote because it very much 
related to this, but first I wanted to get your take on socialization and how you, the way you really, that whole chapter was very deep in the sense of like you set out steps. And I think I have to review that every once in a while <laughs> to understand, okay, there is like a mechanism and there's an approach. Can you kind of give, up, give us like the approach to how to use your teachings and how to use the nonviolent communication teachings of being very like reflective, being very in, being very internalized and understand who you are and then identify your needs to meditate on the unmet needs and then find like positive motivations and make commitment. Like how, how do you, how do you use that like facility of being able to make decisions in your life? Because it was very complex to be able to socialize using the principles you use. Right. So, um, you know, I think it was, it was Marshall who said that uh, he believed that every social change movement began with mourning. Right. Mm. Um, and someone brought it to my attention that sometimes they also start with anger. But I think that the effective ones, you know, the, the more the ones we remember are usually the ones that are able to get to that place of mourning where they see something in the world that's just not right. Right. Mm. Something that just that really breaks their heart. And they say, mm. we got to do something about that. Right. Mm. And so uh, I've met so many people who have had something happen to them that led mm -hmm. them to reflect and then say, I got to do something about this with my life. Um, I remember when I worked at Vanished Children's Alliance, there was the CEO, she came and visited us there and she shared her story. And Vanished Children's Alliance was looking for children that were missing. And she shared that her child went missing and just that she went through that and she just could empathize with all parents that would go through that. And so fortunately for her, she found her child but she said, I got to do something about this, right? She was able to really see the, the need in the world for something to be done. So she started that organization. Um, yeah, that, that was focusing on helping uh, individuals find missing children. Yeah. Right. And, and what are like positive motivations? Like you say, identify positive motivations. So when I, so when I meet, when I have this anger and I have this unmet need, how do I transition into like, okay, accepting that unmet need and then find positive motivations? Do you like have? Yeah. So, so a lot of times, you know, there's two parts of us when we're doing something, maybe that we regret, there's the evaluator in us that judges us, criticizes us. Right. Some of it's them are really... too strong. Some of them are too strong. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that even that evaluator in us means well. So ah, yes. we've been educated to judge ourselves or judge people to create change, but it mm. doesn't work. Right. But we try it anyway with ourselves. So I, I would say to empathize with the, the evaluator, like what is it that uh, that evaluator longs for more than anything else? Right. And mm. then you're going to get to a need. And then the other part of us is the part of us that makes the choice you know, mm. to do what we did. And that's where I think the positive intention is found. Right. So if you can empathize with that part of you that made a choice, like, why did you do that? What need of yours were you trying to meet? Then you can connect with that positive intention. You can connect with that, that energy and say, oh, that's a beautiful need. You know, I, I definitely want that in my life. But how can I go about meeting that need without stimulating harm? You know, how can mm -hmm. I go about meeting that need uh, in the best way you know, mm -hmm. for me and others? Yeah. Wow. And when I read the socializ socialization section, it reminded me of a quote. 
And I wanted to give it to you because it really it resembles exactly everything that you were speaking on in that particular chapter about being your real self, you know, like finding who you really are and sticking to it. And Jim Carrey, one of my favorite people, uh, he meant he, he, he wrote, he had a quote in one of his recent, I think it was a documentary that he had. It was like, at some point when you create yourself to make it, you're going to have to either let that creation go and take a chance on being loved or hated for who you really are, or you're going to have to kill who you really are and fall into a grave grasping onto a character you never were. So I thought, wow. I mean, that really personified exactly what you spoke about because I think a lot of us do create characters. So like, I think you mentioned it, we put on these masks for different identities and we can get overly consumed by these masks because when the heck do we ever take them off? <laughs> like, when do we have a chance to take them off? Like, how do you help somebody that I, I think myself, this is my therapy session right here, Eddie. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, how do you help me really take off the masks and just kind of be f- who I am. Like, I mean, that's a very broad and difficult question mm-hmm. to answer, but what kind of practices can you give in general sense? Yeah, I would say, you know, start to practice wonder, right? Just, just, just wondering, you know, and, mm. and not, not coming from a place that, of I know, mm. you know, uh, questioning everything, right? Questioning your roots, questioning what you were taught, you know, and, and being open minded and open-hearted uh when you encounter life right Right. um i I try to always have that and i i see like my life and how how far i've come and how i've continually changed and evolved Mm -hmm. because i've been open you know Mm -hmm. um and sometimes by because i meet someone or i'm surrounded by certain people whether it's in a work environment or whatnot um people that maybe I would have been like, Oh, you, these, these guys don't know they, you know, their ideology is not mine. It's, it's off. And then all of a sudden they, they have an impact on me and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm thinking like them now, <laughs> you know, cause I'm open though. Right. Oh. And, and, and if I wasn't open, I'd still be stuck, you know, where right. I was before and I wouldn't be reaching my full potential and discovering who I really am. Right. <sighs> and who I want to be. Yeah. That Eddie, that right there. <laughs> That openness that you you reference and you talk about is something that I definitely do strive for. How, are, how, how have you dealt, do you ever deal with conflict or in, internal conflict of being so open that there's like contradicting ideas, or contradicting, you know, I guess motives where sometimes it's hard to like, to differentiate what it is that you truly want because you have, for me, like I have, I'm, I'm open, Maybe I'm a little, not too open, but I don't know. I don't think that's an issue. But being too open to the point where it's hard to understand each idea. Right. So I, I think um, I, I try to focus on what uh, the needs are of the other person. So if they have some kind of uh, opinion or point of view, I try to focus my attention on what their mm. need is. Right. What need, value do they have that they're really mm. advocating for and make the conversation about values or needs Mm. um that allows me to appreciate where they're coming from still see their humanity and then be able to to approach the dialogue from that perspective you know so i see that this yeah so so validating what need is important to them and because needs are universal i can say well i value that need too oh yes i just and then maybe i i differ on the way about going about meeting that need 
So uh, maybe then I could suggest that or we could talk about that. Right, but right. first I validate, um, you know, what that need is for them. Right. So that helps me. Yeah, for sure. How do you, how do you somehow, yeah, how do you approach the different needs in say of like in religion or thinking of, thinking of something that's like ideology, something that's very, some people take ideologies and they're very stringent and they don't allow to be open-minded and they believe whatever it is that I believe in, I have to die with. And if I don't, and I can't let other information in or else it'll stricken me and kind of deviate away from my plan. How have you, you started in ministry and I'm sorry if we get personal, but you started in ministry. How have you allowed yourself to evolve into an open being while allowing maybe sometimes contradicting ideas, but you still, you stay, you stay your path and you stay in true to yourself, right? You're not killing who you think you are. You are actually staying true to yourself. How have you been able to mechanize that and being able to use that? Yeah, I think something that helped me was something that Marshall uh, told me in a, in a workshop. And he said, um, you know, I encourage you to read the Bible, he said. But to read it from the perspective of the people who are writing, what were their needs? And it just totally changed how, <laughs> how I read it, right? Because there's some things that even in the Bible that are challenging, right? That, that yeah. sort of rub you and, and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Or, yeah. But just to be able to, I was able to empathize. And so then just carrying that over to any, any religion. Second to last question. How do your clients go from thinking of them being incarcerated was the worst thing in their life to now thinking that it was one of the best things? You mentioned that in the book, and I thought that was quite transformational. Can you give us an yeah. idea of how that happened? Yeah, so definitely. Even when they first come into the class, I'll ask them, you know, I'll, I'll challenge them to think, okay, what, you know, we'll talk about needs and how they're universal. And then I'll say, what needs do you think you can get out of this class? You know, because I really want this class to be meaningful. Because if you're coming just because you have to, that's not going to be very helpful. And so we, we get them to focus on coming because they choose to, right? Mm. Not because they have to and, and having a need that they're trying to meet as a result. Usually it's learning or growth, right? But as they are in the group, one of the things that's so powerful is when you're in a group, there's other people who are also experiencing transformative change. And so they're in a different place. So they'll call you out, you know, if you will. And so when they see other people who are ch changing and other people who are learning, it just has an impact, you know, you're like, oh, okay. And, and I see them like come from maybe week one where I, I didn't do anything. And then just like 10 weeks later, like they're opening up, they're being vulnerable just because of the safety that's created and being in that group. And then what's incredible is that, you know, because they're open, you know, and, and they learn to be open. They're taking in that information and they're applying it to their life. Mm -hmm. And so by the time that they're done, many of them tell me, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't like what I did, but, you know, and, and when I came here, I didn't want to be here, but this is the best thing that's ever happened to me because I'm a different person, you know, oh, and I'm man. breaking the pattern. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true growth right there. That's self-actualization, right? I love that. Um, Thank you, Eddie. Last quote here. I mean, last quote. Well, last question here. What's one moment from 2020 that you least expected to find joy in? Mm. Hmm. Wow. 
Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Take your time. <laughs> yeah. Take your time. We yeah. have some time. No worries. <laughs> well, I think what comes up was, was the pandemic. You mm-hmm. know, um, I, I know when it, it first started, there was so much sadness in me. So I actually allowed myself to experience a lot of mourning and just processing that. Um, but then I was able to kind of get the, the extra time, the time with family, the time to kind of check in with myself um, was really helpful because I felt like I was able to kind of really go deeper into me mm-hmm. and deeper into the things that mattered to me. Mm-hmm. And I even started to, to think of like, okay, what if, what if I'm not here, you know, 30 days from now, you know, what would I want to do? You know, mm. those 30 days. And so I've been living my life that way. <laughs> so I've just been like, okay, so make sure that you're doing what you want to be doing because mm-hmm. you just never know, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so um, that was really helpful for me. That's big. That's big. I appreciate that answer. Gave me, mm-hmm. this conversation gave me a lot to reflect on. <laughs> so Eddie, I think you accomplished your goal here and I appreciate you. I don't think that was your goal, but you're, you're hitting a lot of, bo- you're talking, you're checking off a lot of boxes and everyone, even the listeners here, I think they can take a lot with, with them from this conversation and also from the book. Now, please, this book just came out. So you can get it where exactly and how can people get in contact with you if they want to reach out to you after they read such a magnificent book? Yeah, so, so you can get it uh, on Amazon, any, any online retailer, local bookstore, you can special order it there. Um, you know, and you can also check out my blog, which is uh, harmonyoftheheart.com. And I also created a website called Peace, Love, and Nonviolence, uh, which is like if you want to take another step after reading the book, you can go there. And we're starting something called Peace Circles. So we're encouraging three to four people to gather in a circle, whether through Zoom or in person, uh, probably more like Zoom now. But um, and to just ask each other some questions that help you to focus on nonviolence and to practice nonviolence in your life. So. Oh, wow. I need to join those circles. That's amazing. Well, Eddie, I appreciate you being the, the warrior that you are. You definitely are making a difference. And little by little, you're people by people. You're doing it. And I appreciate you for being that type, being that person in our lives and being able to meet you and have this conversation was a true blessing. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being on the show. And I like what you're doing as well. So just keep keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that. It means the world to you, from you for sure. Thank you. It means a lot. Mm-hmm.